Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. We have an incredible panel today with three of my fellow co-founders of the Lincoln Project, independent political strategist and our captain on this voyage, Reed Galen. It's great to have you back, Reed. Thanks, Ron. National political strategist Steve Schmidt, who has worked for President George W. Bush, Senator John McCain, and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Thanks for being on again, Steve. Good morning, Ron. And communication strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Ron. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Joe Biden's acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention that just wrapped up last night. The report out of the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee detailing the ties between the 2016 Trump campaign and Russia and the indictment of former Trump advisor Steve Bannon on charges of money laundering and wire fraud. So last night, Joe Biden officially accepted the Democratic nomination as the DNC wrapped up. I want to get your thoughts on the convention as a whole. But before that, what were your reactions to Biden's speech last night? Reed, let's start with you. Uh, I thought it was exactly the speech he needed to give. Uh, I, was, I think it was exactly the speech that the country needed. Um, from my perspective, this, was, this is not an election about any one policy. Uh, it is about no less than the future of the country when it comes to democracy, the norms that we've, uh, you know, become, you know, used to probably all too uh, used to and comfortable with and have taken for granted. And I think that he did a good job of laying out the case in a pretty, you know, stark fashion, which I think is necessary, but also, uh, you know, applied a lot of unity to that. And and I think it was important for a lot of independent and Republican voters a lot of whom he'll need to be president to hear him say nothing changes until and unless COVID is fixed. And that's all I'm going to focus on when I'm president. And I think that that was important because it gave license to a lot of folks who were worried about, you know, whether or not it was the progressive stuff on the environment or super high taxes, whatever the case might be, that the guys focused on what's affecting all of our lives uh, individually and each and every day, which is until this pandemic is over, you know, nobody goes back to work, nobody goes back to school, and the economy is a shambles and is likely to be so until we've solved the the overarching mm-hmm. health problem. Mm-hmm. Jennifer? Well, he's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the vice president said exactly what folks needed to hear. Um, and he wrapped it up beautifully. You know, when he came to the end there, he said, let, let us begin, begin you, you and, and I, I together, together, one nation under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each together. other. Like that's that's what people want to hear. That's what they want to know, that that this, you know, insane, destructive period of, you know, American president who cares about himself and his pocketbook only above all else Um that, you know, the the destruction and the, the quite frankly, the evil that has come out of this administration, that it's going to be behind us and that we can be back to this idea of a united nation where even if we're not united in policy and we continue to have these debates, that we are united as a country. And the other thing that I would say, Ron, is that um, I thought that his presentation, in addition to what he said, how he said it, was really powerful on a lot of different levels. He was passionate. He was clear. 
He was direct. He, you know, he really touched people in his presenta- presentation and he really shot a hole through this ridiculous attack that uh, the Trump side has been making on him that somehow he has dementia or he's a doddering old man or he's a not last night, man. You know, he hit the he hit it out of the park is what he did last night. I thought it was terrific. Well, in the last in the last week, we've seen him ride a bicycle, drive a car and right. now read off a teleprompter. <laughs> Uh, in complete sentences. So he's he's three for three against the president. Exactly. Exactly. Steve, what was your reaction to the speech and then maybe maybe to the to the convention as a whole since it's now wrapped up? I think it was the most important speech that Joe Biden has ever given in his career. And, and it may well, and I say this without hyperbole, may be the most important speech that any of us have ever heard in in our lifetimes as well. It's all on the line in this election. It's all on the line. The wreckage that Trump has wrought in this country, when you just step back and ponder it for a minute, and all of us on this call were skeptical and worried the day that Trump swore the oath of office, took the presidency, and then stepped out and lied the next day about his crowd size. We were all worried about the beginning, but to but to have projected from that moment to the last night of the Democratic convention of pondered by the time we get to the election, we'll have 200,000 dead Americans, a shattered economy. We have Russian bounties on American soldiers and a president who refuses to do anything about it. Violence let loose by the state against peacefully assembled protesters in front of the White House which now sits behind this gigantic wall. It's a hard thing sometimes to wrap your head around the type of damage that Trump has done. And what Joe Biden said last night was that I'm going to be the president for all the American people, including the people who won't vote for me. I'll work just as hard for them as I will for my most avid supporters. That's what the job of the president is, is that we are a union. You know, United we stand, divided we fall, the notion that we're all in it together. And this race is so clear and so simple to me after listening to the vice president's speech. I mean, it really is choice between a good man, Joe Biden, and a really bad man, Donald Trump, between a decent man and an indecent man, between a moral man and amoral man, between a respected global statesman and an international Laughing stock, you know, between someone who cares about the country and the people in it, and someone who cares about their self-interest and their personal privilege and power, and this the choice could not be more clear. And I thought that the whole convention laid that out. There's two very different visions of America that are that are on the line. You know, Trump has let loose the furies. He's opened Pandora's box. He's, he's let all the pathologies that exist in American life, all the, all the darkness um, that we fight against, you know, Trump has embraced and, and let loose. And I thought this convention was you know, sometimes a little awkward. But what isn't awkward in the in the COVID era as we try to as we try to navigate as we try to navigate through this? But it but it reflected the reality that we're in. I think that you know my friend Stephanie Cutter, um, Obama's former deputy chief of staff, who was tasked with putting this convention together. I mean, I just think the job she did was genius to conceptualize this. The the amount of production the amount of work to pull that off over four days. 
I just think it's an incredible achievement. Um, and it's an incredible achievement in the sense that there was nothing to copy. They had to, they had to make it up from scratch. And the only thought that, that I had during big stretches of this convention was what insanity are we going to see next week? Because there's no, there's no process like the one the Democrats had playing out that's very thoughtful that's, you know, what story do we want to tell? I mean, next week is going to be a spectacle for the ages and not in a good way. And so I thought it was a very successful week, a successful convention. And, and you know, and, and lastly, I thought President Obama's speech was mm-hmm. extremely important for the, for the country. He is a controlled man. We know that from having watched him for eight years and the passion in his voice, the sadness, the worry about the about the country was also very, very real. And and I hope that speech caught a fair amount of people's attention. And they couldn't have put the president in a better place than Philadelphia to explain the stakes of the election. So I think it's a big election. It's a big choice. There are big consequences, and I thought the convention met the moment in framing all of that. Yeah. Reed? We used to talk about, you know, what's what's the American way of life? In the Cold War, it was in the context of, you know, democracy versus communism, but it was, you know, external to us. Now it is internal to us, which is what is our way of life? I mean, the way that the things that Steve described, those things, you know, the foundation of them were the first three years of of, of this presidency. But he's done most of them in the last seven months. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. think about all yeah. that. That's scary <sighs> in and of itself. Um, on the production front, let me just say, as someone who, uh, you know, spent three months in Philadelphia uh, in 2000, you know, we worked every, all day, every day um, to get that ready for George W. Bush. And there had been people there a year ahead of us mm. laying the groundwork for those things. And so, as Steve said, you know, putting these things on on short notice is almost unheard of. I think it probably changes what conventions look like going forward, which I don't know that anybody on this podcast is really, you know, going to weep for the past in that regard. Um, But I think they did do a good job. I thought that the roll call was a great illustration of the country writ large. And it's and it's it's not only the sweeping nature of it, but the diversity of its people, the diversity of its geography, uh, and just the overarching beauty that I think, you know, I'm lucky enough to get to enjoy every day, but a lot of folks probably aren't. Um, and I think it'll be a great contrast to next week when they're going to hold Trump's renomination vote in secret. Yeah. Jennifer, the, um, you know, Steve mentioned something about the story that they told. And I, and, and you mentioned something earlier on about, you know, this was, this was not what, we might have expected a democratic national convention to look like. Can you talk a little bit about the the narrative that they that they created throughout the week and and how that you know who that spoke yeah, to? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but even before that, you know, Steve just eloquently and beautifully laid out um, the 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 difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. 
and and it, and it made not it moved me. I, I'm always moved to some degree when Steve talks. He's he's so eloquent in this. But what it made me think this time was that we live in this world where we are so focused on politics and process and conventions and every detail. And the truth is, the majority of the American people did not watch the convention, and they didn't see what we saw. They'll see clips of it and pieces of it, but so like in a nutshell, like, like the, the message that you get out of this very simply is Joe Biden's a good guy and Donald Trump is a bad person. And I just think sometimes as Americans, like we, we have a hard time embracing that. We always want to say, well, he's not a politician. He's not this. He's not that, you know, and try, and try to excuse it or understand it. No, Donald Trump is a bad person. There aren't a lot of genuinely bad people in the world, but he's one of them. So it's like, I, sometimes I feel like we just have to cut to the chase and be more direct. He's a bad guy. Joe Biden is a really good guy. Let's make the right choice. As far as the narrative in the convention, they did a magnificent job of storytelling, in my opinion. Um, starting on day night one with the national anthem sung by children and adults of every race and creed from across the country. I, I always kind of you know choked up when i hear the national anthem especially when it's sung by children i was you know had tears coming down my cheeks by the end of that and i think that's what they really needed to do they needed to touch people's hearts they needed to really connect with the american people and they had this covid challenge on them to try to do it and they spent the entire week telling the story of joe biden and kamala harris and america and every night there was something there that showed us in unity, that, that showed the breadth, uh, you know, and depth of the American people, you know, the color of the, the colors of the fabric of our country. And the thing they did really brilliantly on every single night was speak to Republicans and independents, which you don't normally do in a convention. It's usually just about rallying your base, unifying after the primary, and you know the big rah-rah for your party. And they used messengers and messages that they, were, they are already in the general election on night one of their convention. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought I, from a messaging and a communication standpoint, you know, A plus. I thought they, I thought it was I thought it was brilliant. And can I can I add one other thing, which is that do. I thought a fair amount about John McCain over the over the course of these over the course of these couple of days. And I um I think that there are two underlying crises in our in our politics. We have a crisis of truth and we have a crisis of courage. And the crisis of truth goes to the nonstop lying and gaslighting that we see coming out of this administration every day. And there's no boundaries on it. Even in the deadliest of pandemics, we have a president up there peddling snake oil cures, his friend, the MyPillow CEO, advising people to take these medicines, and it, it will it will kill some of them. And we just we've just become completely detached from the idea of the nobility of truth that we we have an expectation not to be bullshitted lied to conned by the people that we put into positions of leadership in this country and i think that we saw president obama and vice president biden speak some fundamental truths about the situation the country the magnitude of the 
of the crisis we're in, and and that's important. And and I and I thought about John McCain in that space because if John McCain was still here, and I wonder this all the time, I wonder if things would have gotten as bad as they have gotten in the Republican conferences in the in the Senate, in particularly, because I just he just would not have tolerated this bullshit, and he would have stood up and he would have he would have called it out, and so. We have this entire class of political quislings, right? Men that, and women, that would have been wonderful apparatchiks for the Vichy in 1943 France, um, like Marco Rubio, like, like Ted Cruz, and just a crisis of courage. And then we saw last night, we saw this young man with a stutter stand up on national television in front of the whole country, um, introducing the next president of the United States. I mean, anybody would be nervous about that. But to watch that young man get through that, that was a character study in American courage. He had the same composition of the young men, not too much older than him, that 75 years ago stormed the beaches in Normandy. He represented a type of fearlessness that we need to spark again in this country. And, and we would not be in this position but for the cowards that surround Donald Trump everywhere. And so I, I loved the exposition of courage that we saw because it's going to take yeah. guts and courage and truth and the reestablishment of those noble virtues to get us out of this disaster. I thought Gabby Giffords displayed the same. For sure. In 90 seconds, mm-hmm. you know, uh, someone who'd been shot in the head while, you know, talking to her constituents, um, you know, had to leave Congress uh, to, to, to take care of her rehabilitation. But, you know, when, you know, she was going to be there. And you read the stories about it that it took just about all the strength and energy she had to stand up there for 90 seconds and do it. And she did it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think if we can be more like the young man who introduced Biden and, and more like former Congresswoman Giffords, I think we can all use that sort of grit and determination. G- Gabby Giffords had to leave Congress to, to fight for her life. You know, it, right. it just but the, Braden Harrington, that, that, little, that young man, I was about to call him a little boy. He's a young man um, is from New Hampshire. And I, I'm, I'm sure you all remember it was newsworthy during the primary when he stood up and spoke to Joe Biden um, at that event to, you know, to begin with, to say to him, what did you do when you were my age and, and getting bullied and, and, you know, because of a stutter and how'd you overcome it? And I watched him, first of all, frankly, I, I, like I cried, I ugly mom cried when I watched that. It was <laughs> it really, it just, I, I just, I, I, I was so like I just was so overwhelmed with pride for him, and he's not my son. But, but every like, I I can't even tell you how moving it was. But what I'm thinking about, you know, now as I look back on that moment, every we all you could you knew in the moment what it was the courage, the inspiration, you know, the the touching the hearts of every American, no matter what their political, you know, uh, leaning might be. Um, but as I thought about it afterwards, I was thinking, uh, Braden Harrington would have been bullied by Donald Trump if they went to school together. Donald yeah. Trump would have been the kid, sure. you know, the jerk in the locker room who was teasing him and tripping him and pushing him into a corner and everything else, and then standing up straight and looking the other way when an adult came in the room. And, um, and, and so, like, Braden standing there was just so representative 
of of ex- like it, of exactly what is wrong with Donald Trump. And and if every American can have the courage that that young man had, then our nation will be saved. That you know, it's as simple as that. I yeah. think too, if to 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 play out on that analogy, right? And Joe Biden would have been the kid in the school who stood up and knocked the bully on his ass, right? For for picking on that kid if he if he saw it, and mm-hmm. and I just and there was another aspect of the convention, um, the Biden granddaughters, um. I'm so looking forward to a return to decency and normalcy, to have a normal family in there, right down to the new first dog. I think it says something about Trump. There's no dogs in the White House. Yeah, listen, remember, it's the it's the Billy Madison rule. He's mean to old people, kids and dogs. Right. That's yeah. the definition of evil. Yep. He is. Um, I mean, the Biden's got a great looking dog, Major Biden. Anyone who hasn't seen a picture of that dog should go look it up. It's a great German shepherd. Um, you look, I, I think that when you look at Joe Biden and you look at the family, the, the other thing, if you watched all of it, is you, you can't help but look into the dark places of the tragedies that have shaped, shaped his life. It's that I think that all of us with kids, young kids, we have these primal fears Right. You want to you want to keep your family safe. Right. That there are there are bad things that happen in life and you try to push those thoughts away um, that they could happen to you. And you look at a family that has had so much loss, so much suffering. Yet Joe Biden has not lost his faith, has not lost his optimism, has not lost his his dignity. And we live in this era, and one of the one of the things that I personally can't stand the most about this metastasis of the Republican Party into whatever it is today is the constant whining, complaining, and victimization. That that the higher you are on the ladder, the bigger a victim you are, right? The louder the complaining is. And it's such an anti or un-American virtue. It just, it truly is. We're not a, we're not a country of whiners and complainers. And I just think about Trump's constant complaining his weakness. And then you look at Joe Biden, that combination of stoicism, toughness, faithfulness, optimism, that this idea that you can move through the darkest moment of the night, but still understand that when the sun rises, there's a new dawn and new, new possibility. And I, I just thought that the family and their disposition towards the harsh tragedies of, of life that they've been subjected to is just a remarkable character study with regard to Joe and Jill Biden. And it was incredibly impressive. And, and, and this man has the requisite qualities of character to begin to turn this disaster around. One of my favorite songwriters, a guy named Jason Isbell, and uh, he has a yeah. song and he says, uh, you know, when talking about great loss, it, you know, it gets easier, but it never gets easy. Yeah. And I think that for a guy like Biden, you know, he will care. He carries those losses with him every day, right? Whether or not it's his, his first wife and his young daughter or Bo, he carries them with him every day. But I think that if you can turn that into a the you know if you could turn that pain and that loss into something that is channeled into something positive 
right? It doesn't mean you're ever going to get over the loss of two children and a wife. But it, what it means is it, it can drive you either into the darkest of places or to the place where it gets you out of the bed in the morning and say, I'm not going to let this get me down because they wouldn't, they wouldn't put up with it from me. Right. And I think that that's what Biden does. And I think there was a, and there was an overall, you know, and I think that to, to expand on Steve's point, the, the family piece, I think was not an accident. Right. I mean, they clearly understood. <laughs> Even, you know, there was there was a reporter on Twitter who said, I can't believe they put Hunter Biden on the air. Well, why not? Of course he's, they he's would. His son. Right. And and like, OK, you know, we all we all have family members. All families are are a patchwork of, of personalities and issues and everything else. Like, let's let's see what Don Jr. and Eric and Ivanka have to say. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, so uh, we'll see. And, you know, of course, it will be a, a step through the looking glass. But the idea that like Joe Biden wouldn't have his sole remaining son up there talking about what a great daddy was is ridiculous and said, bring it on, Trump. Here's my boy. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Listen, compared to Don Jr. Come on. That's 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 an easy one. And but to, the thing, the, the all the talk about loss, you know, I, I hadn't thought about this until listening to the two of you just now, because we all know the story of tragic loss um, in Joe Biden's life loss of the of someone that you love so deeply is a is a common experience everybody experiences it at some time to some degree and so they can look at joe biden and and recognize the magnitude of and the tragedy of the loss that he experienced and in a in maybe in a strange way or, or maybe I should have thought of it further. It's like that tragedy and that loss is a big part of what makes him um, so empathetic and what makes other people look at him and say, "There's an amazing guy." You know, there's you know they, they they it's part of what develops that connection between Joe Biden and and every human being on earth. Now, and the other thing I'll say quickly before you move on to the next topic is. Um, you know, I'm going to jump ahead to the end. We say, what are we looking? What are we going to be looking at in, and following in the next week? The from, cheating. You're cheating, so, Jennifer. Oh, it's all about the cheating. No, from this <laughs> moment until the end of the convention, my what I'm going to be looking for is to see whether or not Donald Trump has even the m- minimal amount of self discipline that it takes for him not to mention Braden Harrington, that young man with the stutter who introduced Joe Biden. I don't know you. That's an obvious one, you know. But you know, as soon as that young man came out on the stage. Everybody in Trump world said, oh, crap, he's going to what stupid thing is the president going to say? How is you know, what is he going to do? And and I don't know if he's got it. I got it in him. That's what I'm going to be looking for. Yeah. So this just to wrap up this topic on, you know, one last one last point that I'd like each of you to, to weigh in on is what they did a masterful job of with the convention just in in total was to rekindle the sense that we're all in this together, which is exactly what Donald Trump has spent the last three and a half years trying to extinguish. And, you know, early in his speech, Biden said, this is, this is not, not a partisan, partisan moment. moment. This must, be an, this must be an American moment. America isn't just a collection of clashing interests of red states or blue states. We're so much bigger than that. And we saw that play out throughout the convention with a number of prominent Republican officials at the convention, Governor Kasich and Governor Whitman and Secretary Powell. Jennifer, maybe you want to start, but Reed and Steve, I'd love for you to weigh in here too. But how important will it be for we're calling them Lincoln voters, to stand up and share why they're not voting for Trump. Not voting for Trump. It is so important. Um, and and all you have to do is watch those clips of, of those 
well well known Republicans telling their stories. Um, you you can that's how you connect to people. That's how you move people, um, both in their thinking and their action. Um, it, you know, is being as personal and as um, real and sincere as you can possibly be. Every single person in the United States of America has been hurt by Donald Trump one way or another, whether it's economically, whether it is, um, you know, just to your spirit, um, whether you have lost a loved one to, to coronavirus, to COVID-19, um, you know someone who has. Uh, if, if you've had anybody in your family who has required medical care that has nothing to do with COVID-19, during this quarantine and during the, you know, this, this pandemic, then you have been hurt by this. Anyone who's been through that experience knows how absolutely horrific it has been for anyone to get the medical care that they need. So I just, I, I can never emphasize enough. And this is something I always talked about when I was chairman uh, to our activists, you know, whether you're on social media or talking to family or anything else, just be real. Just tell the truth, you know, be yourself, tell your story, and that's what's going to move people. That's what's going to, that's what's going to connect with people. Um, so, you know, how important is it? You know, I don't know. What's the maximum scale of gajillionness of importance? That's how important it is. Something uh, Jennifer brought up is, you know, we don't have kings and queens in this country um, by design, right? We've fought a whole war over it. Um, but if you tell me that having a president who is empathetic and understands the needs of individual Americans versus what we've got doesn't matter. I would, I would, I would, you know, commend to you the idea that, you know, all of these, you know, nativist ethno, you know, uh, centric people that we've, we, that the Republican party and the conservative conservative movement, such as it was in the United States for many years kept at the fringes, or at least the country writ large was able to push back into the woods um, have now been allowed to flourish and are out on the plains. Um, and so I think what you see is that this stuff does matter, <clears throat> is that I think there are a lot of people, and I hate to say this, who might have otherwise never said the things out loud that they might have thought in their head because it wasn't socially acceptable, because some things, whether or not you want to believe it, are not socially acceptable. Um, that's part of being a society. Um, Donald Trump has allowed those people to flourish and to come out into the sunlight. And I think that it's someone like Joe Biden who's going to say, you know, when, when my, my, when my girls are growing up and they say, who's the president? I say, Joe Biden. And they say, is he a good person? I'm going to say, yeah, he's a grandfather, just like your grandfathers, right? He's, he's someone who cares just as much about his girls as I care about you. Um, can I say, you know, could I say that about the current president? I can't because it's not true. Um, and so I think that, you know, as a, as a, as a leader, it's not just about organizing the government um, and executing against the things that, you know, the, the American people need, but it's also serving as the exemplar of, I think, for our children and for so many of us, what it is it means to be an American. And certainly I think we've taken a hard right turn on that. The other thing that I think that Joe Biden talked about that really deeply connected with me when he talked about his father and the things that his father would say to him, who was a blue collar working class guy. And he would say, Joey, and he would talk about the dignity of labor and a job is fundamental to a sense of purpose and worth. And it was so refreshing to hear a political leader connected to that value, which so many of them are detached from. And I, I just was thinking about this story from earlier this summer, where 
there were two men who 30 years ago made a handshake deal that if one of them ever won the lottery, that they would split the, that they would split the prize. And there was no contract, just two friends. And one of them won the lottery, a lot of money, like 20, $30 million. And he split the money uh, with his friend on the basis of a handshake and a long ago promise. And I think about that in the context of these lines from Biden's speech last night, where he says, here, here and now, now I, give you- I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we, the people, to come together. Which is certainly true, but you know for certain that he means mm-hmm. it. And when Joe Biden says, I give you my word, Joe Biden is the type of man that you can put that in the bank. And he's 77 years old. And that's been true probably for at least 70 years. And we know the quality of the character of the man. And one of the great poisonings of our soul that Trump has brought us is is around this point, is around the fundamental systemic dishonesty that if Trump ever said, I give you my word, you'd be waiting for the knife to be plunged in your back. Again, good man versus bad man. And it's really at a fundamental level as simple as that. Let's move on to the two pieces of news this week that were very noticeably absent from the Democratic National Convention, in particular Joe Biden's speech. Um, But first was the news that the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee issued their final report in their more than three-year-long investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. The report concluded that Moscow, quote, engaged in an aggressive, multifaceted effort to influence or attempt to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election, end quote. And one of the key findings of the report centers around Trump's 2016 campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. The Intelligence Committee's report identifies Manafort's longtime friend and co-worker, Konstantin Kalimnik, as a Russian intelligence officer and states Manafort created a, quote, grave counterintelligence threat, end quote, by passing information about the 2016 race to Kalimnik. Manafort shared confidential polling data and details about Trump's campaign strategy. So, Steve, let's start with you on this one, because you've worked on multiple presidential campaigns at the highest levels. Um, what was your reaction to the communications from top campaign officials and uh, a Russian intelligence officer? Well, first off, on the two presidential campaigns that I worked on, if a hostile foreign power made contact in any way with the campaign, would have called the FBI and wouldn't yes, have hesitated to, <laughs> yeah. to do it right within 30 seconds. And so would have everybody that I worked with. Um, Second thing is, true story, I called the Hillary Clinton campaign in the, in, the, in, in the late spring, early summer when Manafort took over, and I, and I said, quote, he's a Russian spy. You, you know that. And this was, this was not news to anybody. Um, if you were working for Yushchenko in Ukraine, you were on the Kremlin payroll. And so this isn't a revelation. None of the stuff in the report is a revelation. What's amazing, though, is to read the report, which came out of the 
committee that Marco Rubio is the chairman of, having recently replaced Richard Burr, proving that you know, one man's insider trading scandal is another man's opportunity in the Senate Republican conference. So this Rubio report comes out and it's written in English and it's very direct in its findings. And then Rubio comes out and tells everybody that it says exactly the opposite of what's written in it. It's incredible, the gaslighting. And so, yeah, the, the Russians penetrated the Trump campaign. They absolutely colluded together. Collusion has a meaning in the English language. And it is and continues to be an outrage. And all of this stuff is still happening. And it won't stop until we have a president. We have a president. Biden. I think that's a really important point that this is not this is not done. And in the past, now that the report is out and final, this is happening now. It continues. Yeah. Can I can I just yeah. can I just say one thing Please about do. Manafort quickly yeah. and then I'll let Jennifer go before we talk more about it is, you know, here in Utah back in 2016, a friend of mine said, what do you think about Paul Manafort? And I said, well, other than the fact he's an agent of Russian intelligence, I think he's a great guy. And the guy's like, you're full of shit. I'm like, OK. Um, and then, and then it, it all came out. He's like, you were right. I'm like, I know it was the worst kept secret in Washington, DC for 30 years. Like this was not a surprise to anybody who lived inside the beltway going back to when I was a kid, everybody knew. Um, and so, yeah, this is yeah. And, but I think I, I want to like Jennifer go, but I do think there's, there's a string to play out here. Uh, on you know the fact that it's still ongoing and what else it means, but go ahead, Jennifer. Well, please. Uh, just extending on that, that it's still ongoing. What else does it mean? Uh, you know, people are asking all of us all the time. We put out an ad against the senator, that senator. Why are you going after the Senate? Why are you going after the senators? Just to beat Trump. Trump. This is why we're going after the senators. Who is on that committee? Do you know? A couple of senators that you've seen ads against from the Lincoln Project. If we when when we founded this organization, we we said we are here to defeat Trump and Trumpism. So here's what everybody needs to know about. That was a Republican majority committee, a Republican authored report. It was a year and a half, a year and a half in the making. So let's set aside the beginning of the Trump administration. Just look at the last year and a half when all of these Republicans knew what we all now you know, ha have confirmed for us what we've all known all along, but has now been confirmed for us. And look at all the things that happened. Where were those Republicans in the middle of that impeachment trial? Where were they on the day that you had to vote on, you know, the impeachment that, that cleared, uh, that presented clear and obvious evidence of the president's guilt? Where have they been throughout this entire pandemic debacle, you know, disaster, uh, it, the, the constant um, you know, Steve talks about gaslighting, but it's not just the gaslighting. To me, what's worse than that is the silence or 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 the bullshit answers when they say, "Oh, I don't look at his Twitter feed. I don't. Uh, I, I right. you know that's just the president." <laughs> yeah. Get, okay. The, the senior shuffle into the in the conference yeah, come lunch. Come yeah. on! And the whole time they knew. For this report tells us clearly they knew. That's why the Lincoln Project is looking at Republican senators. Here's the craziest thing about this whole era. I think like if you if we maybe we could do one of these where we where we rank them all on the on the first Senate Republican conference lunch after the attack on the peacefully assembled protesters in front of the White House so Trump could walk across the street to St. John's and hold the Bible upside down. They had a Senate Republican conference lunch. 
I know this for a fact. In that lunch, none of this was discussed. You just it didn't come up. I mean, think about that. You have an you have an assembly of Republican senators get together to have lunch. George Floyd has been killed recently. We have these protests, and they didn't they didn't talk about it. And they were they were they were a mile away. That's just like it wasn't like it's happening. I mean, these people aren't just silent, complicit cowards. They're 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 as fundamentally out of touch with what's going on in this country as President Snow and his cabinet in the Hunger Games in Panem. I mean, it's it's just it's really it's really, really incredible. And it's why they got to go. What what Jennifer said was right. They knew. Yeah. They've known. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we talk, we, we often talk about and we, 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 you know, excoriate them for their silence. This is, this, this is no less than active participation. If they knew 18 months ago, which we all knew, frankly, four years ago, what was going on, and they had conclusive evidence of it, and then they took proactive steps to ensure that the person they knew was guilty of these things was then cleared and exonerated of further uh, acts in the same vein, then they are accomplices. They were not silent I mean, bystanders. Again, I, I just can't help but think of John McCain. Oh. I, I mean, he would have gone so batshit fucking crazy. Right. right? And rightfully that, so. It, there's, not, it, there's, not, it, uh, there's not a word, not a word to describe, to describe what his reaction would have been into that and and to see what it is is just is god it's shocking no, and you think back also It'll always be shocking i mean you know even prior to mccain think about into the you know the 80s uh, someone like a howard baker from tennessee you know who was a lion of the senate in his own regard right um you know f- you know white house chief of staff but and someone i was lucky enough to meet when he was ambassador to japan with his wife nancy Casabon baker uh former uh, senator from kansas these were people who in their core Right. Many of them had fought for their country. Right. Uh, Certainly McCain, you know, certainly sacrificed and suffered for his. They would never have allowed this kind of behavior. And just I was thinking about this the other day when I was a kid. Do you remember how many straight days of hearings there were with Ollie North and his potted plant lawyer (laughs) sitting there because Ollie sold missiles to Iran and used the money to fund the Contras? And that took weeks we got shit that goes on every day that is like six hours worth of news. And then it moves on. Like, where have we gone as a country where like, the, where, where are we, where's our outrage, right? Remember yeah. Dole in 96, where's the outrage? Like yeah. he, he asked a good question yeah. just 25 years too early. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think that we, we, as we think about this sort of great reset that occurs only when, and if uh, Trump goes is like, we have to say there are, there are lines in government that we will not cross. There are institutions that matter, um, and we need to we need to reestablish those. And it's not an easy job, right? The, the, as you know, as the great well, I don't know if he was great, but uh, the longtime Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn from Texas, said, you know, any any jackass can kick a barn down. It takes a carpenter to build one. Well, we got the biggest jackass in the in the barnyard here kicking barns down left and right, and we need a carpenter like Biden to get it back together. And you know, Steve talking about John McCain in all of this. Um, I, I did not at all know John McCain the way Steve Schmidt did. And, uh, but um, I campaigned with him. I was on the ballot with him in 2008 up here. And, uh, and then, you know, throughout the primary and many. So every time I saw him, two things about him. One, I was always impressed that he remembered who I was. 
that because you know how many millions of people did John McCain meet and and interact with? He always knew who I was. But in the middle of the primary um, in 2016, I got in trouble because I um, call I forget exactly what it was. I was particularly damning remark that I gave to the Boston Globe about Donald Trump. And I was always getting in trouble about Donald Trump because I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. He was so horrible. And I was chairman of the party and everyone expected me to be quiet. So um, the um, he, John McCain was up here campaigning for Lindsey Graham. And, and I can't even remember. I, th- I think we were at a, um, at like a, a sort of a small town hall and I talked to him afterwards, you know, how are you? You're, you're doing great. This, you know, and, and he kind of, pulled me in just a little bit closer to me. Apparently he had read the, the Boston Globe story and he pulled me in and he said, keep it up. People need to hear it. You know, people need to hear that kind of, kind of mm. thing. Just keep, keep mm. it up, chairman or something. And, and it was just like this little thing, but it was totally John McCain, you know? And, and where is that person today in the U.S. Senate? Because you know who it's not? It's not his good friend, Lindsey Graham. And I have no right to t- comment on their friendship. That's none of my business. But Lindsey Graham has not picking up, p- picked up the mantle of John McCain because Lindsey Graham, by the way, at a Christmas event during that primary, pulled me close and said to me um, something similar, something like, keep it up. You got it. You know, you're doing the right thing. I hate that effing guy is what he said in my ear at an event. So that, and I'm sorry, it, are they golfing together right now, this morning? Are they on the golf course together? It's unbelievable to me. And the thing about John McCain is, if nothing else, he told the truth. And truth matters. And that's what Donald Trump has destroyed. Steve? I'll tell a short John McCain story um, before we transition to uh, our next subject. But we... Um, I remember being on a plane with John McCain and there were about six of us and it was unbelievable turbulence. And by unbelievable turbulence, I'm talking like the scene from Castaway with Tom Hanks. You heard like the engines whirring. I've, I've never been in a plane like that. And McCain was sitting there. We were all white knuckled looking at each other. And McCain is just very calmly reading the paper. And he pulls the paper down and he looks at all of us and he goes, Jesus Christ, everybody. He goes, relax. He's relax. He goes, I've been in five plane crashes. He goes, that's not how I'm going out. And he, and he put his and he put the paper back up and we were all we were all calm for about 30 seconds. And then he pulled the paper back down. He goes, then again, maybe I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> that was that was John McCain. Okay, let's um, let's move to our next. Uh, wait, wait, can I can yeah. I just want, Ron one yeah, more yeah, thing please. though because I, I think it's important for folks listening to understand what what to to put this in the context of the next seventy some days. Yes, um, is that you see the 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 Rubio report, which now its chairman is repudiating. Um, remember that this is the same Marco Rubio who ensured back to Steve's earlier point, that the provision about uh, making it federal law that presidential campaigns had to report foreign contacts uh, made sure that that provision was stripped out. Uh, You know, they put a patsy in there as chair. Burr, for all of his insider trading issues, was, I think, a a fair dealer on these things. Um, You now see um, Russian Ron Johnson um, from Wisconsin, who is, you know, uh, as chair of the oversight committee in the Senate, is, you know, now carrying um, you know, Russian water for, you know, Burisma and all these things he's going to do next month as he calls, you know, people close to Biden. And you know, I'm sure they'll subpoena Hunter Biden to make that a story. Um, and then there'll be some other 
um, you know, October surprise that they come up with. And so it's all of a pattern. Um, and, you know, I think if you'd, if you'd asked me to do this a year ago and I heard myself future read talking about this stuff, I'd think that I'd had some sort of massive head injury. Um, but that's where we are now is yeah. that it's all of a type yeah. and it's all does two things. One, obviously there's the straight, you know, tearing down of, of a Joe Biden to make him more vulnerable to attack. But then there's the second piece, which is the continual and I think insidious uh, delegitimization and sort of confusion of the American electorate to ensure that less people show up because as we decided, and I think our, our colleague Mike Madrid can talk about, Donald Trump can't win a high turnout election. It's got to be a, it's got to be a depressed, low turnout electorate like 26, which is why it's so important for everybody listening to go to lincolnproject.us slash vote. Right, Ron? Thank you for that plug, Jennifer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And actually, before we leave this topic, by the way, so there's another piece of this report because it also provided new information about communication between Russian intelligence and WikiLeaks and between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. Um, the committee found that WikiLeaks not only played a role in election interference, but also very likely knew it was assisting a Russian intelligence effort. That's a quote. And Roger Stone served as the go-between for WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign uh, in a written answer to Robert Mueller's team. Trump said he could not recall discussing WikiLeaks with Roger Stone. Despite this, the report says, despite Trump's recollection, the committee assesses that Trump did, in fact, speak with Stone about WikiLeaks and with members of his campaign about Stone's access to WikiLeaks on multiple occasions. Reed, I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you buy that Trump didn't remember speaking to Stone, that multiple conversations about what was critical aspect of the campaign would slip his memory? Uh, no, but he's like uh, Vincent the Chin Gigante after he was elected or excuse me, indicted, you know, and he's shuffling around in his bathrobe up and down the street in the Queens or Brooklyn, wherever the hell it is. You know, Donald Trump's memory is selective uh, all the time. Um, and remember that to him, whatever comes out of his mouth is the truth at that moment because he has no conception of reality. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he did um, because it's all, you know, self-preservation or self-aggrandizement. Those are the only two gears Trump has. So, so when you read that, you have to say Donald Trump is either an idiot or a crook. I think we need to understand that he's both. He's both. Yeah. I mean, look, this is this, I mean, the, the Trump organization and the family and now the, the White House has been an ongoing criminal enterprise for the better part exactly. of 40 years. Yeah. All right. Last but certainly not least, uh, yesterday, Trump's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, here we go, was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering. Bannon and three others are accused of using hundreds of thousands of dollars raised in an online crowdfunding campaign called We Build the Wall for personal use. The organization was founded in 2018 to raise private funds to create a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border and told donors that 100% of the funds raised would go toward building the wall. The indictment was announced by acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Audrey Strauss. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she took over the office when Bill Barr pushed out Jeffrey Berman. For more on that, check out our weekly roundup from June 26th. Now, after Bannon's arrest, Trump said that he was involved in our campaign. That's a quote. And for a small part of the administration, very early He was on. the coffee right. boy. Reed? Coffee. He brought, he yes, brought the exactly. best coffee. He brought the best coffee. It was delicious. It was... It was. Boy, I uh, loved his coffee. Okay. How worried should Trump and his associates be about... Bannon 
So can we just, just before we get to that, I just want to, there's a couple other other great aspects to sure, this story. Yeah. Now, I want to, I want to like start out by saying, um, because there's great glee across much of the land with this news, but everybody in America, including Steve Bannon, has the presumption of innocence until proven guilty beyond a, a reasonable doubt. And so we should remember that we have one political party in this country that's for kangaroo court justice and locking up political opponents. We don't we don't need to have a second one. So that being said, um, I love the fact that he was arrested by postal agents who arrived by seaplane um, to get him off the boat off of off of Connecticut is incredible. And I'm a huge uh, no, the fan. The 150 foot yacht of a Chinese exiled <laughs> oh billionaire. Yes. Yes. So that's the postal agents. Arrive, and I just like my so my first thought was on this and I'm a huge and I know Reed is I'm, I'm a huge fan. And it, it may be the biggest, maybe in all my life, right, for a television show, there is no show that I have loved more than Yellowstone. Like, I love it. And there is, and there's like one lesson from Yellowstone that's like really clear. It's like, if you go to Montana, never, ever, and I mean ever fuck around with a livestock agent, number one. If you watch the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. But number two, in the same sense, obviously, you don't mess around with U.S. Postal Service agents coming to get you by seaplane off the coast to the boat of the Chinese billionaire. It's incredible. It's an incredible arrest. And then Bannon comes out looking like, I don't know what, like, I mean, we can talk about that for a minute. I've never, I will say this, he does deeply and darkly tan, right? He's got, he's got this unbelievable tan. He's got the long hair. He's got two shirts on. But as we were talking about, if you go to prison, you only wear one shirt. You don't get to wear two shirts in prison. And so that's something that Steve Bannon's going to have to think about probably in these in these months well, ahead. Is if, he, if, if you're not a fan transition, if you're not a fan of Carl Hyacin, whose whose mystery novels are, are uh, just a fascinating and perfect look into Florida. I mean, Bannon is a is a is a bad guy out of a Hyacin novel. I mean, he is he's like he's the guy that he. He could only dream to create in one of his in his books, and he's so three dimensionally. He and Bannon is so who he is. I mean, this is the, the thing is, Ron. Why is this such? A, why yeah. is this not as big a deal as it should be? Yeah, because it doesn't surprise anybody. Right? Does it shock anybody? No. That Bannon and his goons <laughs> started a scam and took twenty five million dollars worth of old people's money. No, it doesn't surprise anybody. Yeah. Does it surprise anybody that Donald Trump pretended not to hear about it? And then we have the video, and I think Ron, maybe we could pull the clips together. I think I think Keith pulled them yesterday of Chris Kobach saying he talked to Trump in the Oval Office about it. Oval Office, and Trump said, "You have my full support." And tell the media too, right? It's just it's the problem is, frankly, and I mean it's it's funny because otherwise we'd cry. Is that like it doesn't? There's such a discount rate on the entire goon squad's behavior that everybody's like, "Yeah, I guess." I mean, sure. Doesn't make, yeah, that, so, make sense. So, and, and he sort of joins a half dozen other campaign advisors who've been indicted since half Trump took dozen? office. So, I think he went up, it, up that yeah. number. <laughs> at least. Yeah. Uh, I right. mean, it's just, it's just like, it's a pack of scumbags that just almost defies description. Truly, it does, right? I mean, you got Trump Jr., got Kimberly Guilfoyle, the grift, the theft. The dishonesty, the scamming, it's just, 
beyond beyond words and it's just so out in the open and um I, you know, I know what can what can you say it's about it? There's two there's it's who they, are. I mean, it's it's who they are. It's who yeah. they've yeah. always been. And they've just got a platform now where they've been able to to maximize their crooked grift. If that you know, they it, it it's Steve this is who Steve Bannon has always been. This is who Donald Trump has always been. What's really disturbing about it to me, at least on the surface, when you first, you know, read the story, when you realize who are the people that, you know, donated that $27 million. There are people who gave their last dollar to that. People who were drawn in and convinced that there was some sort of, you know, deadly invasion of marauders coming across the border and Donald Trump needed them to help save America and build this fence. And elderly people giving their social security, young, you know, I mean, you can just go through the list. These were not millionaires and billionaires saying, here, have a couple of my extra million. Those are the kind of people, you know, that's the, the people that they're taking advantage of. Unbelievable to me. I, it, it infuriates me. Well, maybe one of the lessons going forward from this is that when we consider who to make future presidents of the United States, that if you ran a scam right. university, that, you know, that maybe that tells you, you something. If you, if you decided that your business was going to be stakes, right, and that people would buy stakes that said Trump on them. Maybe you're not the right guy for president. And and as long as you're at it, just really quickly, it's not a grift. But if you had your teenage daughter sit on your lap and you'd tell everybody, uh, you know, that, gee, if she wasn't your daughter, you'd probably date her. I would like to think that disqualifies you as well. That's just it's so, so creepy. creepy. There are two salient questions to this topic that I'd really like to get your How many fake to. passports does Ron's Steve trying Bannon so have? Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are a lot of hot takes here, but there are two questions that are important that I'd like you to answer. So the first, and these are mirror images of each other. So I'm going to read them both and you guys can have at it. First is how worried Trump should be about Bannon, number one. And number two is it, we should note that this indictment came out of the Southern District of New York after Barr pushed out Berman and tried to install a new acting U.S. attorney from outside the office, how concerned are you that the Trump administration is looking to use the Department of Justice to protect the president and his allies? Those are two separate questions, but they're well, very the related. the second question answers itself. He is using it to protect him. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I think I don't, I, I, I don't. All the folks you mentioned in the Southern District of New York, I'm, I, I don't know who they are off the top of my head, but I would say that, um, you know, Bill Barr is our favorite Interior Minister since you know Jaruzelski in in '73 in Warsaw. So, I mean, he's he's at it, you know. And I think that a lot of the stuff you see, you know, that that guy, uh, what's his name, Chad Wolf from DHS, he's not smart enough to figure any of this stuff out, but Barr probably is. Um, and on the first question, you know, it, it, how, how concerned should he be? He's going to let him off the hook, right? Maybe he'll let him, you know, dangle for a few days. But, you know, at some point, if and when Bannon goes to trial, um, Trump's going to let him off the hook. I mean, what's at this point, what's the downside for Trump? I mean, he already let the rest of them off the hook. I mean, I mean, I think Manafort probably doesn't say anything because God knows, you know, he's got a lot bigger problems than Trump to worry about as far as like people after him. Right. Um, Gates is probably already in and out of prison. Um, you know, some of these other guys got a slap on the wrist and Flynn's, you know, fate is up to, you know, a, a district judge in, in D.C. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if he lets him off the hook because, you know, there's no downside for Trump. I, at this I was going to say that, um, you know, Bannon isn't going to flip because he's got to look at, just look at Roger Stone. He knows he knows he's just got to hold on. 
and and sooner or later, you know, the whether it's Will, you know, Bill Barr or Trump or you know, it's somewhere along the process. He knows he'll get he'll get saved. He'll get rescued out of this. But then I thought about it a little further, and I thought Roger Stone, for the weird, creepy, screwed up, crazy person that he is, is a lot tougher than Steve Bannon. I think Steve Bannon is soft, and I think he is really soft. So I don't know how, you know, where are they going to put him while the, you know, I don't know what the process looks like for him. Well, Maybe well they, he does, they, they let him out oh, on he's bail. Already I, out. I, I couldn't, yeah. I could, yeah, they, he posted bail, which I couldn't believe they didn't remand him given the fact that, you know, he was on a yeah. Chinese billionaire's yeah. yacht in the yeah. Long Island Sound. I mean, this is a guy who, for all of his other foibles, um, probably understands, you know, what hole he can go climb into for a few years if he needs to. Yeah, man. Steve? Well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, <laughs> He already looks like he's been living in the woods for 20 years, right? So from a fugitive perspective, um, you know, I don't know. Look, I, he, um, he's a bad guy. He's the architect of a lot of the real toxic sludge of shit that the country's dealing with off of these Breitbart platforms and everything else. And um, no doubt a crooked guy. and. You know the whole lot of them. They're all just a bunch of bunch of crooks. It's what it what it proves. I mean, the whole idea of it's preposterous. Give us twenty five million dollars, we'll build the wall. I mean, the wall. I mean, literally, fifty years from now, um, if the country makes it and endures, I mean, it it will be very hard to try to communicate to people about the total stupidity of this of this moment, right? Particularly around the wall, right? It'll be an avatar of the stupidity of the age. The wall that Mexico was going to pay for, the wall that Trump claims to have built but doesn't exist, right? The $25 million that is campaign chairman and son and son's girlfriend were involved in scheming to build Americans out of millions of dollars for it's just it's just no words. No, and I would say this is that, you know, what will happen is, and I, I do not recommend anybody actually do this, but if you listen to Steve Bannon's podcast, which is not nearly as good as the Lincoln Project podcast, it is a, it is a total detachment from reality. Um, you just spend 15 minutes with it and you, just, it, you, you have to sort of shake yourself out of a torpor that it puts you into because you get, you get this sort of weird vibe out of it. But it would not surprise me that if he's either on the air today, recording today or sometime next week, that this will all be part of a deep state conspiracy to get the Trumps and to get him. And they're going to try and make him flip And By God, he's never going to turn on Donald Trump, the greatest president the United States has ever had. And so, you know, it's it's it in it in its own twisted way, Bannon will use his arrest for for um mm. for his own gain mm. to continue to push the sewage into the American political system. So you didn't see that he's already started to do that. There's this clip out yesterday from some internet news site. I forget what it was called. It's and it's um it was called not the not Russian the Ru- intelligence service. I swear, news I swear, not the Russian <laughs> intelligence service. But it's Bannon, you know, standing where I assume he was was supposed to have been somewhere near the border. The hair is blowing in the wind. He's got Kovacs on the phone, and it's as if he's, as you know, they're trying to set themselves up like he's interviewing them, telling this tale 
about the GoFundMe, the you know the the Build the Wall GoFundMe account, and something about that they had set up a GoFundMe earlier in the week to um, raise money for the victims of Black Lives Matter, and so and GoFundMe shut them down, and they're not going to tolerate this you know this um, you know attacking of conservatives by you know media and GoFundMe and everybody else. So to show them, we shut down our very successful Build the Wall GoFundMe page. We showed them we're not going to be uh, censored. They they knew this was coming. I mean, they they knew this was coming. They knew uh, this was just a day or two ago, I believe, that they filmed this thing. It it's well. Don't leave out that the Black Lives Matter thing was just a to scam get them to get African Americans uh, to give them money. No, it was. Uh, no, it was. <laughs> right. It was for the victims of Black Lives Matter. It's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. Oh, you're right. I, frankly, Sorry, yes, I think I it was to right. set themselves up to be able to say we're being censored by GoFundMe. So we shut down this other account thinking that somehow that was going to protect them when this all crashed down on them t- yesterday. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but I mean, Ron, the, the larger point is that the Trump, Fox, Owen and Bannon, Limbaugh, Levin flywheel of death is a very real right. thing. And like they're at oh, it yes. every day. You yes. know, I say I mean, yes. we've been we've been laughing because, yes. you know, the, the humor is sometimes the best salve for oh. for concern. But I mean, it's a very real thing and they work on it. And every if you're talking about the day. flywheel of death, you have to mention by name Janine Pirro and Sean Hannity. Oh, yeah. Well, there was that story out yesterday that I haven't had a chance to read about how everyone inside Fox News is beside themselves because even Trump right. has crossed some crazy line right. that they don't want right. to go past. Um, probably because none of them want to go to prison either would be my guess. Speaking of stories, other stories that you're watching, let's let's wrap up here and look to the week ahead. So um, why don't we start with you, Jennifer? Um, I'm honestly your story focused on the Republican National uh, committee's convention next next week. That's what I'm going to be watching and keeping an eye on. Um, and in particular, I will be interested to see. Um, I just out of curiosity, the production value compared to the Democrats, because the Democrats, I think, blew it out of the water with how do you run a COVID convention. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious to see if any thoughtfulness at all has gone into that. But more importantly, is um, who is going to be speaking on behalf of the re- Republican Party in 2020. Who is going? Who will be the faces of the Trump uh, Republican Party? How many of those U.S. senators are going to put their face in front of a camera and speak on behalf of the president? And who is the president going to bring in to be his people? We've already seen some of them. You know, the 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 rich white couple with their guns pointed at peaceful protesters going down the street in front of their house. Um, so I, because I I think that that is. It, People, especially Republicans, especially please my friends in the Republican Party, they have got to look at who crosses uh, their screen at that convention and ask themselves, is this me? Is this my party? Is this where I want to be? Is this where I want my country to be? Um, and and am I really going to give this uh, the extraordinary privilege of my vote to this man? So that's, and of course, as I said earlier, I'm going to be watching to see whether or not Donald Trump can, can hold his, you know, hold, hold himself in just enough discipline to not make some comment about people who stutter or the disabled in some way between now and the end of the week. Reed, what are you looking at besides the RNC? I think the RNC will be the fever dream that it will be. Um, So, you know, uh, we'll just have to take that as it comes. But what I'm looking at at is actually a little bit, probably two, three weeks into the future, maybe a month into the future, into September, which is, I think that we've got 
uh, a hell of a lot of economic pain coming our way. Um, I think as, as, you know, um, rental and mortgage forbearance comes to an end, uh, as, as, you know, increasing numbers of default notices start to go out to homeowners. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks who think about, well, you live in an apartment building that must be owned by, you know, some, you know, big company and, you know, or some billionaire, but, you know, it very well might be if it's a nine or 10 unit building that this was bought by a couple who had a couple of good years, you know, in the nineties of the two thousands and they're still paying a note on it. And if, if the rent's not being paid, then they're not paying the, you know, the mortgage and eventually the bank's going to take it. And those people probably saw that as their nest egg. Um, I, and so I think that you're going to see a lot of this sort of cascading, you know, on the commercial front, uh, real estate wise on the, on the residential front, you know, I think we've seen an enormous, uh, small business bloodbath. You know, a lot of these companies, these businesses, as Biden noted last night, they're never coming back. Um, and then I think you also see, you know, even on the big company side, you're seeing massive layoffs. Again, a lot of these folks are not going to go back to those jobs they had. And so I think that, you know, in the, you know, sometime by mid September, I'm, I'm deathly afraid that we're going to see some really ugly, uh, realities for tens of millions of us who, um, have probably been, you know, for whom the, the, the federal stimulus sort of helped keep afloat. Now the water has run out of that hose as it's been turned off. Um, and of course, you know, the Republican Senate is gone until I think after Labor Day, because now, and again, you know, back to the whole purely, puerile politics of this, they now want to say that they're fiscal conservatives, right? After they've spent trillions of dollars on other crap. Um, But so I I think that, you know, that's what I'm looking for is is people start to feel real pain. What does that mean for us as a country? And ultimately, you know, whether or not uh, I hope we'll be certainly making sure that people know whose feet it is, the the, the blame lay. Um, But that's my fear is what's going to happen sometime in the next month or so. Yeah. Steve, let's close with you. What's your story? What are you watching next week? Well, the next week will be the Republican convention and whatever levels of insanity I'm sure it will achieve. I know that it will exceed those. And we're going to get to see a really stark choice for the for the country. And you know, next week's going to be very worrying when you see the numbers of people in this country that support this rancid message, which will emerge out of this, out of this convention. Um, so all eyes on that. And then the fight that follows because there's just such a clear path and such great consequences. If we go down the wrong one. Thank you to Reed, Jennifer and Steve for being on the show today. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.